Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. In our first segment today, Chris Whittingham and I will talk about Wednesday's Champions League games and the new World Cup every two years news. It's kind of wild. The second segment will be my interview with Nick Holliday, a 15-year-old goalkeeper who recently signed a pro contract with North Carolina FC. And in the third segment, we'll talk Tuesday's Champions League games. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham from the stadium in Miami. How are you, Chris? Doing all right at Drive Pink Stadium. I hope I'm not too distracting with music being played in the background <laughs> as we record this portion of the podcast. <laughs> I hear you just fine, so I think everyone else will. Uh, we're recording this at 5 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. I want to start before we get to the games with sort of the big news of the day, and it's courtesy of Rob Harris, a terrific reporter from the Associated Press, we've had him on the show before, that we've seen this stuff about FIFA wanting to make the men's and women's World Cups every two years instead of every four. The news today was interesting because suddenly UEFA is bringing the heat to an extent, and you've got federations in Europe talking about getting out of the World Cup, getting out of FIFA, if FIFA continues to go ahead with this. And then uh, Rob reporting, Johnny Infantino, the FIFA president today, saying, well, you know, we could potentially have the World Cup every two years, but teams wouldn't be in each and every World Cup or wouldn't be in consecutive World Cups, potentially. And for me, this just slipped to the level of farce. It was kind of silly before, but now, like, I guess I should be clear. I have actually no huge problem with the idea of a an international soccer tournament that is sort of like the NIT or teams that don't go to the World Cup. The Europa League of the World Cup. Yeah, but don't call it a World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's just I know another you got the trademark yeah. FIFA, but don't call it the World Cup. And sure, why not? That would probably make FIFA some money. But don't have a World Cup every two years and don't have a world I know you're okay with that idea to some extent. And for me, don't have a you know, don't have a World Cup that doesn't have the best teams in the world in it. I mean like it it's it's kind of silly at this point. And I realize that Johnny Infantino may just be sort of free associating on some of this stuff. But I guess the question becomes, you know, what's actually going to happen here? That's what people actually want to care about. And is some of this just silliness? And where are we going with it? Well, I think that the the notion of FIFA having so many member nations who have an equal voting power does mean that I think what you and I and what people who follow the game would think to be the best thing to do here might not actually happen because I think a lot of member nations probably just vote for whatever is the most financially salient thing to do. And so having as many World Cups as possible is probably that. Uh, You mentioned the proposal of not having teams participate in back-to-back World Cups if they're every two years. That was actually put forth by the General Secretary of the Portuguese Federation, which makes me, like, this whole thing, this report from Rob Harris, he basically acquired the tape of a secret, not a secret, but a closed-door meeting that the European Federation had with FIFA. And what it really terrifies me 
in the respect of is what happens at these meetings? Is it basically just like if you and I and 10 of our closest friends got together and had a pitch session for, hey, how would you fix the World Cup? And there's a guy that's at the other end of the bar that overhears us having this conversation. Hey, what if you had a World Cup every two years but not everyone played? And the president of FIFA goes, oh, not a terrible idea, which is apparently what he says. He says here, I welcome as well the idea of Tiago to say, well, we need more participation. Maybe there's a way of doing that by having two World Cups. I mean, look, the expansion to a 48-team World Cup is based, in my opinion, on getting some countries more engaged in soccer. I would say most notably India and China. They're the ones that, they're the biggest markets that FIFA hasn't probably penetrated with the World Cup enough and made the World Cup a big enough deal in those nations. So I think, you know, if you have 48 teams that make it one year, maybe India and China can make it in the next one. But I think, as you said, it reaches the level of farce. I hate my allies on this because I don't necessarily hate the notion of a, a World Cup every two years. And really the Trojan horse for this, the explanation that leads Rob Harris's piece is, well, we've got to keep kids engaged in soccer. We got to keep kids engaged in football. There's there's a wax because of esports and all these other split. The Olympics is taking on skateboarding because kids don't sit down and watch 90 minute football matches anymore. And it's just like, do you really think that patronizing kids with the World Cup every two years or with a World Cup that doesn't feature every team is the way that you engage kids in this sport? It's just it, old men trying to guess what kids are into or what young people are into is unbelievably strange to me. It's ridiculous. And let's get back to the very reason they want to have. FIFA wants to have the World Cup every two years. They want to earn more money, and they want to distribute more money to their members. So don't give me some other reasons. We know the reason you want to do this, because if you really want kids to get more kids to get into soccer, there's a ton of things you can do that have nothing to do with having the World Cup every two years. If you, you know, want to take care of players' health, there's a bunch of things you can do that don't involve having the World Cup every two years. So that's what gets me is like somebody trying to tell me from FIFA that there's some other reason that it, that isn't we want more money. And that's all this is. It really is. So it's, it's getting frustrating. It's, I think, tarnishing the image for what it's worth of Arsene Wenger, FIFA's point man for all this. It has a chance to tarnish the image of Jill Ellis uh, if she cares. You know, she's running the, the committee for the, the Women's World Cup changes, potentially. I still have the feeling that, for me at least, changing the Women's World Cup to once every two years is actually potentially more appealing than the men's for a host of different reasons, because women's soccer is at a different stage of its development. But I also know there's a lot of people who are hardcore in the women's game who really are against it. So that's a whole separate issue to see played out. But um, I don't see, I think more and more in the men's World Cup, Europe and the top European teams are separating from the rest of the world. You know, European teams have won the last several men's World Cups. Uh, Brazil and Argentina are not as good compared to Europe as they used to be. And so if you're telling me that you want to make some huge change to the World Cup and try to do it without getting Europe on board, that's not going to work. It's just not going to work. And 
it's kind it is a farce to think that you can push this through without Europe being on board. And the kind of way that I would imagine Gianni Infantino approaches this is, well, I have huge voting blocks in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in CONCACAF that help propel my way into the presidency. And I kind of have Europe as tapped markets, right? There's not a lot of growth for the interest in football in England, in Spain, in France, in Italy, in Germany, all these countries that have the big domestic leagues. There's no growth there. And so you're looking towards serving your member nations that where, where the growth might happen, and you just end up with this completely far-fetched, ridiculous notion of what the game should be. And I understand wanting to change the power base, but... Look, the the power base is what it is. The European countries are the ones that drive. If you have an, if you have a World Cup without those teams, it's not going to have any interest. You're not reaching kids if Kylian Mbappe is not in your World Cup. You're just not. If Cristiano Ronaldo representing Portugal is not, and so I, I just don't understand why they think that that like and even even like the public posturing of it, as you said, ruins the reputation of people of the organization, and it makes people continually, right, because there's always skepticism about FIFA, it only deepens that, right? And so I, I, I just cannot believe the, some of the proposals that we've seen. You know what? I, I always get asked the question about will the U.S. men's national team win a World Cup in my lifetime? And I may have a new answer now, <laughs> which would be, well, actually, if it's one of the World Cups in which Europe doesn't participate... Maybe the U.S. men's national team can win the World Cup sooner than we expected. So you don't qualify for 26, <laughs> so you can, or for 28, so you can qualify for the next time. The, like you, you time your qualification <laughs> for when the big European teams aren't in it. That's how you go and win the World Cup. Uh, we're going to game Savvy. the system. Fantastic. Um, let's talk about a couple of the Champions League games here on Wednesday. The headliner, Manchester United 3, Atalanta 2. United comes back from being down 2-0 at halftime in this game and being thoroughly dominated at home. Terrible defending on set pieces continuing for United. And somehow comes back to win. Cristiano Ronaldo scoring the game winner on a terrific header. Whipsawing game here between these two teams. And for large portions of it, I'm thinking, oh, wow, Ole really is on his way out. And one game may not save his job to you know any extent, but quite a comeback in the second half by United. Yeah, I mean, it's funny if there if there was an alternate universe in which Manchester United games ended after forty five minutes, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would have been sacked thirteen times by now. It's incredible the number of times. And like you, you talk with, I'm sure I, I, you told me you were watching the game today with a couple friends. I'm sure you just talk amongst each other and you're going. All right, well, this is the end for Ole. Surely, this one is it. And, like, when you're live reacting, I'm sure on Twitter at halftime, Manchester United fans were sacking Ole yet, yet again. The Ronaldo problems are resurfacing yet again. You have all these conversations that are, are you know, around the conversation around United. And it's so funny to then see after they finish the comeback, you pump your chest. Like, the Man United fans are pumping their chests again and, and ready to go. All right, we're back in our team. We're back in Ole. We're back in Ronaldo. It's all back on track because we had another good second half. It's crazy to me how topsy-turvy the narrative is. For me, what it results is is inconsistent performance. You're not going to win major trophies this way. You're not going to continue to pull a rabbit out of a hat when you're 2-0 up. 
or when you're 2-0 down at halftime every single time. There just is a shelf life to the way that Manchester United have gone about their last three years. The number of times that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has done this. And so, I, I while certainly I tip my cap to them, Harry Maguire scoring after having a bit of a nightmare of a first 70 minutes. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo scoring after the conversations began around him. Con you know, congratulations. They, they're now top of the group in the Champions League, which is an impressive feat, and they should be celebrated for that. But I don't know, man. I just don't think this is sustainable. And I, I, I'm surprised that Manchester United fans want to talk themselves into this. Yeah, performance-wise, it's just not there from United, even though they won today. I will admit to yelling, hey, Ole, Ole, prioritize this when <laughs> Marcus Rashford scored his goal. I felt good for Rashford doing that. And I felt good for saying that because Ole deserved that after saying that Rashford needed to prioritize his soccer. That was a um, terrible quote, by the way. Yeah, um, but... You know, you look at, at Maguire definitely at fault on one of the goals for Atalanta, uh, scores the equalizer, and then great ball from Luke Shaw, by the way. Let's just say that on the game winner. And, and a terrific header from from Ronaldo, who I still think they United plays better, would would play better without him on that team, but he's had some big moments. He scored quite a few goals now for him this year. So um We'll see where they, they take it from here because they went from looking to be in a really bad spot in Champions League to not so much now, but they haven't sealed anything yet. Um, let's move on to a, another team that I find fascinating, Salzburg 3, Wolfsburg 1. And Salzburg and Brendan Aronson have not lost a game this entire season in any competition, and that includes Champions League. They're atop their group. Um, it's a group that includes Sevilla, Wolfsburg, and Lille. I do wonder sometimes if Jesse Marsh wishes he were back at Salzburg. <laughs> but, but like, Adeyemi is just a, a phenomenal player. There's a reason why he's being pursued by so many teams like Bayern Munich and Dortmund and Leipzig. Another goal today. John Brooks, not great, by the way, for Wolfsburg. But there's something about Salzburg that I, I just really enjoy watching them and I love the fact that Aronson has such a, a role with them playing the number 10 today. The one thing though that does aggravate me about it is now it would appear that Salzburg is second on the pecking order in the Red Bull organization chart and Leipzig is top which means that New York is in third and so you, I, I do wish that I was watching a version of this team play in New York and play in MLS that they can attract these kinds of prospects because clearly the Red Bull model works. It, it's incredible how they, they replaced Jesse Marsh with a manager who I, I read today is 33 years old, and they just bring through the next slew of prospects. They'll sell the current crop that are doing well in the Champions League. They'll attract some attention like Minamino did uh, a couple of years ago with Salzburg. Obviously, Erling Haaland did with Salzburg. They sell them on. Now, Patsendaka today in the Europa League after being sold by Salzburg scored four goals for Leicester in a, Europa, in a random Wednesday Europa League game. So they, just ha they, have a, they have an incredible model at Red Bull from Leipzig to Salzburg, and I really wish it looked the same at New York. Now, that's not to say... I mean, they've sold some players, right? They've they've sent Kamar Lawrence to Europe, although he came back. Obviously, Tyler Adams going. Caden uh, Clark is next. He's going to go to Leipzig. They're doing okay, but by comparison, that Salzburg model is a machine. The Leipzig model is a machine. They're incredibly good at what they do. Yeah. I mean, if you're a New York Red Bulls fan, I think you have reason to be upset because that team 
isn't good enough, isn't relevant enough in New York City where I happen to live. Uh, and I thought Hurt Gomez and, and Sebi Salazar had a good point on their ESPN show that the Hudson River Derby just not really resonating at this point. And, and, you know, both those teams we mentioned the other day could end up missing the MLS playoffs. So, yeah, is, is you know, clearly Red Bull knows what they're doing, particularly in Europe, also in Brazil with Red Bull Bragantino. Um, not going so well in MLS, but I, I do really enjoy Salzburg um, and the way they've risen the last couple of years. And Jesse Marsh was part of that. So was Brendan Aronson. Uh, like, in general, when you see the role of Americans in Champions League, whatever match day, but including this match day three, there's good things happening. You know, McKenney played today for Juventus. Serginho Dest started at winger again? Dest, um, you know, Adams, Aronson. I will say, though, you, you owe, by the way, the Brooks thing. I think we're now... Uh, this is a real problem. Not that I would not that, <laughs> yeah. not that I would imagine he was going to start the Mexico game, um, just because of you know form for the national team. You would never pick him in such a big game, but it is getting to a point now where you're going to close 2021 with two more international games left for the U.S. Wondering is John Brooks okay? Like, is he going to be the top level player for the U.S. again? Because I- I'm I'm really starting to get concerned with his dip in form because it was actually. A, a, a dynamic where he was still decent at Wolfsburg and he was still playing well. He got a big money move to Wolfsburg from Hertha. So it was going okay in Germany. It's just it didn't translate to the national team. Now it's being bad in both. And honestly, fit John Brooks might not get called into the U.S. in November. And that's a real surprise given where we started the World Cup qualifying campaign. Really interested to see what Greg Berhalter does with that one. But I agree with you on everything. Brooks has had a drop in form at club that we hadn't really seen uh, before. Uh, that is definitely concerning. All right. Good talking to you, Chris. We're going to have my interview with Nick Holiday here in one second. Then we'll come back and talk Tuesday's Champions League games. Our guest now is Nick Holiday, a goalkeeper with North Carolina FC and USL League One. Last month, he signed a professional contract at the age of 15 with the club. Congratulations, Nick. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So signing a pro contract at 15 is obviously extremely rare. What were some of the things that went into your decision to go pro now? I mean, the culture around the club is just very amazing. Everyone has like the same family mentality. Just wants the best out of you. So I feel like it would be a great place for me to grow and just keep progressing my career. So what's your history with North Carolina FC and your development there? Because you've been attached to the club for a few years now, right? Yes. Well, I joined when I was 12 and I started playing with them U13. Then I progressed from U13 to U15, then U15 to U16. Then I got to play a couple under-23 games, a couple under-19 games. And I was around the first environment for the past two years now. So far, you've played five games this season. You've logged 450 minutes with the team, so five full games. How would you describe how it's gone so far on the field for you? Well, it's gone great. Well, I wouldn't say great, but it's been a great experience, of course. Of course, you want to go out and play to win. We haven't had, I've only got one of the one, one win in the five games, but I feel like I've progressed a lot in my career. You know, it's not commonplace for a 15 year old to be playing in goal, so I'm very happy with the progress I've made. How has that gone for you in terms of interacting with your older teammates? Because, you know, I, I remember covering Freddie Adu and he started when he was 14. Yeah. You're, you're playing with grown men. Uh, how, how are those interactions going? I mean, it's been great. I mean, they, of course, 
make me make me part of the team environment. But they always treat me like a little kid all the time. <laughs> I know, I know, I know my place in the locker. Make sure I get the waters. Make sure I get the bags. <laughs> but no, they all but they all love me. Aren't they? Always there to help me out. Nice. So, what would you say are some of your main attributes as a goalkeeper? And what are some of the things in your game that you're working on the most these days? I'd say my confidence. I think I always like to make sure I'm confident on the ball. I know passing and distribution is a big part of the goalkeeper in the modern day. So I feel like that's something I always try to work on after practice, before practice. And I think just shot stopping is, of course, the main focus point of a goalie. So I think that's what I'm always, I always want to work on, make sure I have the cleanest technique possible. Who are the goalkeepers in world soccer that you most enjoy watching these days? Well, of course, Ederson at Manchester City. He has some of the best feet. <laughs> then, of course, a goalkeeper that person to look up to as a role model is Zach Steffen. He's the U.S. men's national team goalie. He's just been a great inspiration for me, someone to look up to. So you're saying that you're a fan of Manchester City goalkeepers. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Manchester City fan in general. <laughs> nice. It was good to see Zach Steffen get a start the other day and, uh, and do uh, yes, well out there. I know that your father, Corey, played football at the University of North Carolina, and your older brother, Chris, also plays football at UNC now. How would you describe yes. the influence that your family including your mother, Angela, has had on you as a person and an athlete? I mean, of course, my dad played professional football, so he, he knows how, like, the amount of work it takes and how hard it can be. So whenever I have like, a problem just like outside of the field and just behind the scenes of professional soccer, he, always, he knows how to handle it because he's been there. My brother is still playing football now at UNC, so he has to balance school and sports still. So he always makes sure to help me out. I know how important schools are, school is. I mean, I know, Chris, your brother ended up choosing football instead of soccer, but you played several sports and chose soccer. You know, what other sports did you play and, and why did you pick soccer in the end? I played lacrosse, baseball, and basketball. I wasn't a big fan of lacrosse or baseball because he had to wear a helmet. I didn't want to mess with my hair. So those, so those are all man, got the picture. And I just <laughs> fell in love with soccer. I mean, I, all my friends in, growing up played soccer, so I was like, I just wanted to follow them. So I just fell in love with it. And how did your family feel about you choosing soccer instead of football or other sports? They were okay with it. I mean, they just wanted me to be happy and wanted me to pursue what I loved. So they were, they were, perfectly, they perfectly, they were perfectly fine with it. So are you continuing your studies even though you've turned professional now in soccer? Yes, yes. I'm still going to public, public school, Jordan High School in Durham. So I'm still doing my education there. I know... Your brother won a very prestigious scholarship uh, at UNC. Uh, it seems like yes. studies are important to, to the family and to y'all. Is there, do you plan to, at some point, pursue college studies, or, or how are you going to approach that? Yeah, I still plan on going to college. I mean, as you said, my mom and my parents make sure it's very important to have an education, so I still want to get my college degree. Before you signed professionally with North Carolina FC, were there any MLS teams that pursued you? Uh, Charlotte FC was the main team that was pursuing me. What went into the decision to say, I'm, I'm going to do North Carolina FC for now? I mean, I think it was just the environment, like I said, I think the, just the opportunity to play. I think I really wanted to play a couple professional games before I made my move abroad or before the U.S. 17. I want to be on the U.S. 17 national team roster for 2023. So I think having a couple of pro games okay. under my belt would be a really big help for me. So that was one of the main reasons. You just mentioned some of your goals. Like, what are your goals in the coming years in this sport? I mean, to be on the U17 national team rosters is number one. 
of course, is to keep getting a lot of professional games and keep growing as a player. So hopefully when, I turn, hopefully when I turn 18, I can go overseas. Is there any particular place overseas you'd like to go to? Uh, probably Germany. Germany probably makes them, has, a, has a great development for young guys, and especially goalkeepers. Nick Holliday is a goalkeeper with North Carolina FC in USL League One. Last month, he signed a professional contract at the age of 15 with the club. Nick, congratulations on everything you're doing right now. Good luck with the future, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, let's do segment three, Chris. Uh, We've got Tuesday's Champions League games to discuss, and there were a few interesting ones here. The headliner for me, and this is the game I watched live, was Atletico Madrid 2, Liverpool 3 in Madrid. Fascinating game with far more goals than we were expecting in the first half. It was 2-2 after 34 minutes. And then the red card for Griezmann, early in the second half, kind of killed the game to the point where I was just like, it's going to end 2-2. And then a truly stupid penalty from Hermoso of of Atletico (laughs) gifts Liverpool the game winner. Moselock converts from the spot. He's on fire. What were your thoughts on this game? Well, my favorite version of Atletico are when they start 1-0 down early because then they actually start to play (laughs) And we get to see the full breadth of their attacking talent. I thought their response from 2-0 down was like, oh, this is what Atletico could be. Thomas Lamar was incredibly dynamic. Jao Felix was getting into the chances when, you know, he's he's not always looked like a bright star that he should be for Atletico. So for me, in terms of watching them, I want them to be 1-0 down or 2-0 down early because Diego Simeone gets his team out of his shell and they actually start to play. So I thought from an entertainment point of view, this is a great game. I, I think that... It's somehow possible for Mo Salah to be underrated, and like it's and I know he's being talked about a lot right now. But the goal, the, the two goals that he scored, one against Watford and and the goal against Manchester City in that big match before the international break, he is playing at the very top of his game. And I really didn't think that that high level of goal scoring would be so sustainable. I mean, he's been a 20, 30 goal goal scorer for four or five seasons now for Liverpool. And it's a level of consistency that I think, frankly, we've become a bit inured to because Ronaldo and Messi have provided so much of it that you think, oh, yeah, this is what top players do. It's not. And so I think the, the way that Mo Salah is playing right now for Liverpool, for me, is just the continuing headline with this team. They're going to be a top contender in Europe. They're going to be a top contender in the Premier League. I think it's mostly off the strength of what Mo Salah has done this season. And that's actually the source of a little of my concern for Liverpool because... Salah is unstoppable right now. Just absolutely incredible, tremendous to watch, appointment viewing. But lately, at least, the goals he's scoring are sort of low XG goals. He's just doing amazing things to score these goals. And I don't know how sustainable it is. Mm. Now, your point is, is, is good that he's, he's put up the numbers over the last few years, and it's not just highlight real goals he's scoring all types of goals and yet I don't think we've seen this level from Mohamed Salah since the 2017-18 season when we started talking about is this guy potentially the best player in the world Um, we're seeing that again now it's amazing and yet I can't believe I'm saying this about Liverpool. They're 3-0 in Champions League. They're perfect so far. Just had a, a really nice win away at Atletico Madrid. 
They're doing well in the Premier League. I'm a little concerned. And that's that's wild, I guess. But like defensively, there have been some issues. Uh, even Virgil van Dijk got wrong-footed a couple times in this game, including on Griezmann's second goal. And Nabi Keita was terrible defensively, came off at halftime for Fabinho because there was so much space being left open for Atleti in this game after Liverpool had taken a 2-0 lead, by the way. And I don't know how sustainable this is for Liverpool. And, and does that make me just crazy? <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's actually a great point and one I hadn't really considered. Uh, I, I like any argument that is backed by XG. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, lo- I love looking at those numbers. And yeah, I mean, you look at his last three games... Non-penalty XG is 0.6 combined over the course of three games for Mo Salah. And you look at towards the beginning of the season, they were actually he was actually better in terms of getting into goal-scoring positions more often. I, I think your point about Liverpool overall is well taken. I just think that in the league, they've only conceded six goals from eight games. So I, I wouldn't say that that's a massive concern at the moment. They're going to give away some goals when they go against the bigger teams. But I, I think that they just have a level that they hit when they play these high-level opposition that I think is is among the best in the world. And so I do think that it's about what they can sustain week in, week out in terms of performances. And I think the last performance, albeit against a fairly hapless Watford, will give you an indication that they're going to be in decent shape. But yeah, they played track meets against the best teams. It's incredibly fun to watch, but I can understand why you think that that might necessarily be sustainable. I want to move to PSG 3, Leipzig 2, and... There was a point in this game when I thought Jesse Marsh might pull it off. They were up 2-1 at PSG. Leipzig played well in this game, but again, big mistakes, like plays that change games. Unfortunately, this one by Tyler Adams, a back pass yeah. that sent PSG in for the equalizer. Um, on the one hand, I am absolutely thrilled as an American that Tyler Adams and Jesse Marsh are getting the experience of these types of games, right? And and actually playing well for large portions of them. And yet, I think the time of moral victories in Champions League is probably done for Leipzig and Jesse Marsh. Yeah, I mean, and Jesse Marsh has kind of been the king of the moral victory. Even with Salzburg, he was a king of, of, of moral victories. And yeah, I mean, you look at their Champions League hopes now, it's basically over for them. They needed to win last night. Six points off of Man City, seven points off of PSG. I think at this point, they're hoping to caps Club Brugge, who are in fourth, uh, for or who are in third on four points for that Europa League position so they can at least stay in European competition. But yeah, I, I just think that you watch the Leipzig game and the first goal that they give away, they have one center back back to defend a counter from Kylian Mbappe. And I, I love that Jesse Marsh is so kind of in love with the with not not just his system, but what his system means, right? That I, I'm going for it. I don't care that I'm away at PSG. I'm going for it. I want to attack you. I want to make you uncomfortable. Go, 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 go. But there's just a couple of occasions going, man, against Mbappe, you're going to leave yourself that kind of exposed? Um, the, the giveaway from Adams, I agree, was poor and, and, put, and put RB Leipzig in a terrible spot. The penalty for the third goal was just like, what are you doing? What are you right. doing? And then they give away another penalty for what should have been a fourth. If you look at the big games that Leipzig have played, they've given away a ton of goals in the Champions League, in, in, in the Bundesliga as well. They, I think, need to figure out 
frankly, how to switch on because the pressing requires a defensive intensity over 90 minutes that I'm not sure the players coming off of a Nagelsmann system are fully prepared to switch on to. So they might need a couple of personnel additions in order to make sure that they're pressing at that high level. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I was, you know what's funny is that when at the end of every weekend when I check the Bundesliga results, I start with Leipzig. And even in the Champions League on Tuesday, I was checking Leipzig first because I, I'm really invested in Jesse Marsh working there. And I fear that as they continue to drop results, they dropped another one at the weekend. I think it was to to Cone in the Bundesliga. Uh, yeah, and so it, like as those results start to fall, I just get concerned that you know the pressure. It was, it was Freiburg at the weekend, Freiburg, not Cone. Yeah. Uh, but either way. I just get concerned that pressure is starting to melt because Leipzig are like think of themselves as a big club now, a Champions League club in the top four and competing in the group stages, wanting to get into the knockout rounds, and if they don't, then competing at the highest levels of the Europa League. I I, I just fear that Jesse Marsh is not quite there yet, albeit it is a team in transition. I will say this: I think for this season, based on what we've seen so far, they need to finish top four mm-hmm. in the Bundesliga, and that's achievable. I think. But if they don't do that, I think it could be trouble for Jesse. Um, you know, they always want to do well in the German Cup, which they're capable of doing. Um, you know, you look at some of the positive things. Andre Silva's starting to get going. And it took him, it's taken him a while to get going. He was, you know, their big transfer signing up top. And, and he's certainly gotten a lot of opportunities. We're starting to see UC Pulse and getting more uh, opportunities, but but Silva I thought was good in this game. Angelino, fantastic. You know, both goals for Leipzig coming off of crosses from him. He's a, a terrific player, former New York City player, by the way. Yes. And, and if he can get back to where he was last season and he started showing some really positive signs against PSG, I think that's a, a real good thing as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, Leipzig's on zero points here. Uh, Neymar didn't play in this game. Uh, Messi, Panenka, total ice cold <laughs> to Audacious. take the lead. It was, and that, that's just like one of those moments where big European night, Messi steps up center stage and just delivers another great moment. It was like the, the, the world stopped still for a couple of seconds. Yeah. And I would also say Craig Burley's been the one, I think, saying this more than anybody, that Mbappe likes to go down easily hmm. in the box. And I think Craig's gone so far as to call him a cheat. I don't know if I'm going to say that. But, like, was Neymar the worst star that he could have, like, kind of influenced the next stage of Mbappe's career? Like, I feel like he, could, he can go on several trajectories. He can, like, go play with Messi. He can go play with Lewandowski at Bayern or something. I feel like playing with Neymar probably establishes some bad habits for him. <laughs> I mean... It's a tough one, right? Because I, I think it probably was a penalty and you know, Simakon shouldn't have put his hands on Mbappe. He looked like he was a little freaked out in a mm-hmm. one-on-one situation. But Mbappe went down so easily and he does that with some regularity. Yeah, I I thought I thought it was a blatant penalty and but but I also understand that criticism, right? That like that Mbappe is kind of developing, frankly, like world star habits, right? Like he's kind of developing, you know, kind of a larger than life personality. He's going to try and go and win penalties, but he also I think does his fair share to earn those penalties because, as you said, the defender is absolutely terrified at being in a one-on-one situation with Mbappe. So I think Mbappe knows he's got the upper hand, and he only just tries to accentuate it. So let's talk Ajax 4, Dortmund nil, And 
Ajax is kind of flying under the radar here in Champions League, but they're perfect after three games. They obliterated Dortmund in this game from the start. And it's starting to feel a little bit like that Ajax team from a couple years ago that should have gotten to the final and went out to Spurs in the semis. Um, They're fun to watch. They've got maybe the most coveted coach in the world right now. And I'm kind of hitting myself for not watching this game live yesterday. It's so tough to choose. Like, which game am I going to watch live? Ajax Dortmund, you knew there would be goals. You just didn't think that Dortmund would score none. You know, even Erling Haaland had some decent opportunities in this game but didn't score. And and this was just a cakewalk for Ajax. Yeah, well, I will say, though, I think that those Haaland chances were more than just decent chances. I think... He probably should have had a hat trick. He was he, he was one on one, kind of shoved the defender. You see his brute strength. Keeper makes a save. Then another one that he unleashes that was tipped onto the bar. And then there was another that the, the Ajax keeper made another good save. But man, I, some of those chances are really good. But it's just the quality of the play from Ajax is so good. I'm amazed that from that semifinal run of all these jobs that have come open, that Eric Ten Hag hasn't taken any of them. He must just really like working at Ajax. And look, if you're enjoying yourself, why would you go take another job? But man. The football that they play is just gorgeous. Sebastian Allaire, who is not good at West Ham, all of a sudden looks reborn. He's like, I think he's Champions League golden boot favorite at the moment. Uh, and then you look at, I mean, just the, the quality of the goals that they score. Daily Blinds was a great kind of, I, I, I saw there's there's been a debate about what a volley is. I think, that, I think that's just a strike. Um, but just unleash it into the top corner. Anthony's goal coming in off the right. Yeah. Dusan Tadic is playing incredibly well right now. Uh, yeah, and I also saw uh, some some Mexican observers yesterday were pointing out just how good Edson, Alvarin, uh, uh, Edson yep. Alvarez was in the center of that midfield, keeping uh, Dortmund at bay when they were trying to counter, when they were trying to build up, kind of completely nullifying Halan, completely nullifying Marco Royce and Bellingham. Edson Alvarez was a key part of that, playing in that holding midfield player. I saw people are saying that he might be the best holding midfielder in CONCACAF ahead of Tyler Adams. And, you know, on that performance, you can understand why. But, man, Ajax just have so much talent. They've regenerated, which is what they do, right? They probably can't do it every year after they sell Van de Beek and De Jong and De Ligt and, uh, and all, all these key players who were part of that run. Hakim Ziyech went to Chelsea. But now that they've regenerated, they're ready to go again. Yeah, and, and I got real concerns about Dortmund defensively. I mean, this isn't mm-hmm. anything new with Dortmund. I mean, like, for years now, it seems like in too many big games defensively, They've just been awful. And you have credit to Ajax for what they were doing. But uh, there was even, before even the first goal for Ajax, there was a moment where literally there was nobody defending from the left back, left center back position on an early Ajax opportunity where they should have scored. And you're like, what are they doing at Dortmund? So... Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, you know, like these Champions League games between the two favorites in the group are like, it always seems like there's not a ton of jeopardy for either team, just the way the system works. Um, and we'll see if that's the case in every group. But obviously, Ajax is going to have to play at Dortmund at some point. We'll see if Dortmund can show any better than they did yesterday, which was not good at all. Uh, one more game I want to talk about here. I realize we can talk about a bunch of games. Inter 3, Sheriff 1. Sheriff is the best story in Champions League this season. It's got to be, right? I mean, this team from Moldova, which isn't even from Moldova. It's from Transnistria, which is a Soviet 
style 1970s republic that nobody recognizes, won at Real Madrid, beat Shakhtar, and is still atop this group, even though they've lost to Inter. And so this is a group with Real Madrid in it. And with three games left, Sheriff, the first team from Moldova ever to make Champions League group stage, has a real chance to advance. Their next game is at home against Inter. And Inter has this history, right, of not performing well in Champions League. And yet in this game, they ended up getting what they needed. Sebastian Thill had equalized at 1-1 with a tremendous free kick. Inter ends up... Uh, winning at 3-1 and giving themselves some life. Yeah, I mean, it feels like Sheriff can still do it. I mean, I know that they, they, they just lost to Inter, but if Sheriff beat Inter in the next game, they're basically there. They would probably just need a point off of Shakhtar or another point off of Real Madrid, and they'd be there. Like, they're still well in contention to make it to the next round of the Champions League, which would just be completely crazy. I've read up on it more, and it makes it a little bit less romantic for me, just like (laughs) what it represents. It's like, wow, this is bizarre. Um, Yeah, I mean, like, in terms of the way that that area is governed, the way their relations with with the other countries, how just blatantly, like, it's just like the last bastion of the Soviet Union, which is incredibly strange to me. Um, But yeah, Nick Ames did a really good piece for The Guardian that I recommend checking out. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's a completely bonkers story. And the idea that, like, I'm following their scores yesterday, and it's 1-1, I'm going, Inter are up against it. Like, the fact that Sheriff have in a couple of months gone from, well, they're going to lose 6-0 every game that they play in the group stage to, man, I don't know if Inter Milan can beat them. It's, it's completely crazy what they've done with just a couple of victories. It is the wildest story in Champions League in a very long time. And so, yes, I realize there's a million shades of gray. This is not just some plucky Cinderella story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I am fascinated by it. And, and very curious to see if they can advance from a group that includes Real Madrid and Inter and a Shakhtar team that has done well in Champions League yeah. in recent years. So oh, far, so by good. Real Madrid. True, they did. I mean, like yeah. and this was a game, that admittedly, I did not see. So fill me in your take on Real Madrid just destroying Shakhtar. Yeah, it was just kind of, uh, you know, Real Madrid playing like I imagine their fans expect them to every week. Just scintillating stuff, created tons of chances. Shakhtar offered nothing in this game. I thought Lucas Vasquez did a great job. He's technically playing right back, but he was basically playing as a right winger for most of this game. Kareem Benzema, I think, is another one who's probably being underrated right now just because Real have had some down results. But at the same time, Real were, were scintillating in this game. Luka Modric, check out their second goal. I know Vinicius is grabbing the headlines uh, for one of the goals that he scored, but check out the pass from Luka Modric for the second. Just a little pop pass into the penalty area for a simple tap-in. Uh, Real, Real were flying yesterday, and I, we have not seen enough of that Real in La Liga. Somewhat adjacent to this, I'm seeing that the Kareem Benzema-Matthew Valbuena court case is finally going to court in France this week. Why the heck has it taken this long? <laughs> I have no idea. And, and I, I don't want to devolve into French stereotypes, but you just wonder how slow the court system works there. <laughs> For those who don't know, the best way to summarize this is accusation of sex tape extortion hmm. 
by Kareem Benzema toward Matthew Valbuena, his former national team who, teammate. Yeah, who, yeah, is, who were, they, they were then national team teammates. Yeah, and that's why Benzema was not on the French national team when they won the World Cup or for several years until he returned again this year. But it's the several years part that I just don't get why this case is suddenly being... Uh, it's happening now. Was that at the World Cup in South Africa when that happened? So I don't think it was actually after? at the World Cup. They were on the same World Cup team in 2014 in Brazil. Mm-hmm. That's the one where Valbuena, who is one of the more diminutive players in world soccer, they uh, the Brazilian organizers had the ball kid that walked out, the mascot, as they would say, in, uh, uh, in England, who was like taller than Valbuena and it made for an interesting image uh, to start the yeah, game. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading a BBC story. The case dates back to 2015, June of 2015. Both players lost their national team places at the time. Why Valbuena lost his national team place because he got extor- <laughs> allegedly extorted is beyond me, but that's we've, we've definitely gone down the rabbit hole here. Just wanted to bring up the fact that that was in the news again. As was Kareem Benzema saying, I think to Julian Laurence that he's actually interested in coming to play in the U.S. at some point, to which I say, bring yourself, bring your social media team, bring bring everyone, <laughs> preferably to Inter-Miami, where you can hang out with Chris Whittingham. <laughs> Listen, we'll, we'll happily accept Kareem Benzema if he's playing like he is now. I just kind of wonder, like, now, I, I kind of like... I watch some of these games scouting a little bit for MLS. Like, I wonder who would be willing. Like, do you think Dusan Tadic would give it a go in MLS? And like, but if he did, how much of a go would he give it? Like, I, I kind of like check to see if energetically, like these guys, like I would have thought Luis Suarez would have been good because he still had the energy and kind of the desire. But obviously, Atleti have kind of turned him, have kind of given him that second phase of his career. I just kind of wonder now because some of these Champions League clubs are still giving the older players a go like what what that market is for MLS to take advantage of an older guy who does want to give it a try I still wonder about a guy like Edison Cavani Mm. like especially now that Ronaldo has taken up so much of his playing time at Man United if potentially that might be a possibility the main roadblock with Cavani has always been with MLS his salary demands are through the roof and yeah, it's like it's like twice what Carlos Vela, the highest paid player, makes. Right. All right, my friend. Always good to talk to you about Champions League. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Nick Holiday as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. Can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that. See you next time. <laughs>